just uh, then last week had a little bit of a health issue that detained me for a short while, and uh, that cleared up. It's a chronic thing that comes from time to time. But I felt that uh, it cleared up actually just as services were starting, but I'd asked Nelson to have that tape ready uh, when I realized I was having a difficulty. Uh, once he started it, uh, got into it a few sentences, my problem cleared, but I uh, I thought, hmm, that sounds like we ought to hear it. So I just went ahead and let it be played, because I think it is kind of a precursor or an introduction in a way to where we're headed now. <coughs> we need to have it established that we are nothing. It is only by God's grace that anybody can do anything. And I, I think some of the comments made there were a good lead-in for today. Uh, got a couple, three questions for you. What is the work of God? Now, in Worldwide Church of God, for decades, as far back as I can remember, back in the 50s, we heard references all the time to the work. And we'd hear Mr. Armstrong say, do the work. And I'm doing the work. And we must do the work. Uh, he talked about the colleges. Well, they were part of the work. The ministry or the members out in the field, they were part of the work. Uh, television, radio, magazines, booklets all had to do with the work. So it's a term that we are quite familiar with, and we viewed that as a singular thing that was going on. That that was the work of God, that which we were involved in, that which Her Herbert Armstrong had been called to start, and which we became a part of at some time in the process. And so... We were added to the work, added to the church, and I don't know that there was much delineation really between the church and the work, because he told us quite frequently we were not there for our own personal salvation, we were there to help with the work. Now that sometimes perplexed me a little bit. I wanted to be saved, and yet I was there to be part of the work. Now, our salvation, then, was based upon, in great part, how we uh, performed within the work that God was doing. So, it was more than our personal salvation that was involved. There were then maybe six billion people on the earth are going on back five and a half to six and a half and closer to seven now. But most of them were not part of the work. Only a few were called out to be a part of the work of God. So how do you define the work of God? Herbert Armstrong said he was the first one to preach the gospel in 1900 years, said that actually quite frequently, and that the work he was doing and that we were doing along with him was the only work God was doing on the earth. 
The Catholics were not doing the work of God. Neither were the Methodists or the Pentecostals or the Scientologists or you name it, were not doing the work of God. And in fact, if you look at the fruits, you will see by doctrine and by what goes on that they were really doing the work of Satan. Unknowingly, thinking they were doing the work of God, the Mormon church is not the church of the Latter-day Saints of Christ. They aren't saints. They don't keep God's laws. They don't recognize who God even is. Can you call the Mormon... They're doing a work, aren't they? They're sending missionaries all over the world and getting bigger and bigger and making lots of money and doing all kinds of things, own big corporations, and they think they're doing the work of Christ. I don't think so. And I think when we get through with this, you will probably go, oh, I think you're already convinced anyway. I'm preaching to the choir. But uh, we're going to see some things about the work of God that maybe takes it a little beyond <clears throat> what we have thought of or envisioned because we were in a fairly narrow frame of mind in what we were saying. And yet, I cannot take exception, especially with the study I've been doing, with what Herbert Armstrong was saying about doing the work. But let's widen this a bit and see what the work of God really is and how we might or might not fit into the work today. Now, when we called it the work, it was Worldwide Church of God that we were referring to and to Herbert Armstrong's ministry. Uh, that church is now gone. Uh, he is now dead and has been for three decades. And where is the work today? What does it mean? Is there one? Is a good question. Is there such thing today? Let's go back to Genesis. I'm not going to start with 1 1. Well, maybe I should. Because here was, it isn't called a work here. But it says in, and it should be A, in a beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. So it was nothing. This was the black planet. There was no light. Uh, it was just darkness on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters... And he brought light, and then he brought land up out of the water, and so on and so forth, in this period of time in which he was recreating. So in a beginning, he created it, but it wasn't anything like it is today. So he began to do something about it. He began to add all kinds of things that would be hospitable to the presence of man, whom he was about to create. Now, he went through all of this, and I won't go through all of it, but I want to make a point over here in chapter 2. He says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So he redid some things, not only in the earthly heaven, but in the heavens and the earth, and the host of them. So the stars, the planets, and so on, 
were a part of it uh, that were, to one degree or another, refurbished, realigned, whatever. I think that probably that is when he, as he established the year of 360 days, he also established the heavens as we now know them. Because from my study, I do believe that the feast days of God are reflected in the movement of the stars. Uh, Bullinger's book on, um, now I can't say, sometimes I can't say his name, now I can't say, God's Witness in the Stars is the name of the book. He goes through that and shows the movement of them and how they reflect all seven of the holy days and the holy day seasons. So, there were no holy days prior to this work that was done, and probably the stars and everything were not arranged as they are today. So he put them in a certain order for the purposes of keeping track of time, keeping track of his holy days, and didn't he tell us that we would use the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, and the stars, in order to calculate when his holy days would be? Makes it very clear in Genesis 1.14 that that was to be done. So when it says all the host of them along with the heavens and the earth were finished, it probably includes all of that, getting it in order for what he was about to do on the earth with mankind. But notice he says in verse 2, And on the seventh day, after having done all this, God ended his work. Now that was the end of the work of God. <laughs> right? That was the end of his work. Now, we're referring to a very, in one sense, narrow work here. But it was a work, and it was ended. And it was not the work of man, it was the work of God. And it says right here, in so many words, God ended his work. Which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because that in it he had rested from, from all his work, which God created and made. So he had done a monumental amount of work in a week's time. And it says he ended his work. Now, I'm going to show you that there are other works of God. But I want to make a point here that this work ended. The work of Herbert Armstrong has ended. Let's understand it in that context. I'm not saying God hasn't done a lick of work since then. But that was a specific work that he had ordained to be done, and he did it all himself. He enlisted no help from man. He enlisted the help of Christ, who made everything that was made, as we know from Colossians and other places. But he didn't enlist any help from mankind, because there were none uh, to help him. Now, you will notice as we go through Scriptures, that every work that God does hereafter, 
he enlists the help of man. You can't find any major work of God that he did not enlist man to be involved in. We'll see that. Now, did he do some specific miracles here and there? Yes, he did. But as far as any work that had to be done over a period of time, he used man. So, that's the main point here to make, is that he began a work and he finished that work. And then he rested from that work. Then he went on and did other things, but those other things then became a different work. Okay? Just as Herbert Armstrong finished his work and died... Is there another work after that? Now, we have a lot of people in a lot of different organizations that came out of Worldwide who say they are doing the work. Are they doing the work of God? Let's just leave that question up in the air for the moment. But I wanted to pose it at this point. Because we're going to go through a lot of information, and then we're going to address that issue. Where is the work? Is there a work? Who's doing it? What shape is it? What form? What fashion? Do people think they're doing something they're not doing? All good questions. You and I were called out of the world to be part of a work of God. And that church and that work died. So now, where are we? Let's leave that one open-ended as well. Let's go through some scriptures. Just in a general way, let's go to Psalm uh, chapter 64. I'll string some of these together and then we'll See if we can put them together and make some sense of the whole thing. Uh, Isaiah 64, 9. This is long after Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. Here it says in verse 9, And all men shall fear and shall declare the work of God, for they shall wisely consider of his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the eternal, and shall trust in him, and all the upright in heart shall glory. Now, before that, David is talking here about enemies who whet their tongue as arrows and so on, that they may shoot in secret at the mature or the perfect or the righteous. And they encourage themselves in an evil manner, verse 5. So he's saying here that there is a time when there will be wicked around and they will not acknowledge the work of God. They will not acknowledge what God is really doing and where he's doing it and how he's doing it. And they encourage themselves in an evil matter or manner in what they think. Now, there are a lot of people right now that were at one time in the church of God, who think a lot of different things. And some of them are doing some pretty evil things at this point as well. But they don't think they are. Do you think 
Aaron and Miriam thought they were doing an evil work when they complained about Moses? No, they thought they were doing the right thing. Was Korah, in his own mind, doing the right thing when he rebelled against Moses? Oh, yeah. He thought God was on his side. He thought everything was A-OK when he rebelled against Moses. No problem. God speaks through me. I'm a Christian, too. We don't need Moses. Let's go get rid of Moses. And all the princes of Israel said, Okay, let's do it. And they thought they were doing a righteous work. Didn't turn out too good for them. But they in their own minds thought they were doing a righteous work. They really did. They were honest, open, and sincere about it. They talked it up and convinced themselves in an evil manner. Did they not? Verse 6, they search out iniquities. They look for sin. They try to find sin. They try to pin sin on people. <clears throat> they accomplish a diligent search. They don't just try to find sin. They look for it carefully to try to find sin in others. Both the inward thought of every one of them and the heart is deep. They are very deeply into finding sin. And they want to point it out. But God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly shall they be wounded. So they shall make their own tongue to fall upon themselves. The words that they are saying will come back to bite them just as you bite your own tongue sometimes. And don't you just hate it when that happens? You're chewing along and maybe enjoying something that you really like and think it tastes good, and suddenly your teeth come together and bite your tongue. That hurts. We don't like it. But the very words they say will come back to bite them in their own tongue. They'll make their own tongue to fall upon themselves. All that see them shall flee away, and all men shall fear, and shall declare the work of God. There is coming a time when everyone is going to realize that Satan and man have been deposed, and that God did it, and then they're going to declare the work of God because they're suddenly going to fear Him. Now, this implies a work that must be going on for some time. Now, I say a work of God ended there. Creation week was His work. And it says it ended. Now, we understand a longer-term work, do we not? We grasp today that God has a work going wherein, and the reason for the creation in Genesis 1 was because of this other work, which is bigger and lasts longer, that he is going to do. He created man upon the earth in his own physical image, and to some degree they were in his same character image, because they had not yet learned about good and evil, they had not sinned, and they were pure and clean before God. 
Now, that wasn't going to last very long, and they would become filthy and dirty and deceitful and lying and thieving and cheating and everything else that man does. But God created them in His own image, and He intended, obviously, for man to come to have the same character, the same mind that He has. And there, for a brief period, they were in that circumstance until Satan intervened and human nature suddenly appeared in a very raw fashion. Now, God has another work, and that is to restore mankind to where he was before Satan influenced him, and then not only to make him in his physical image, but in his spiritual image. And the rest of the Bible talks about that. It begins with man and the earth created in a beautiful state. It ends in the book of Revelation with the earth going back to a beautiful state and being cleansed. And every human will either be obedient to God and be in the image of God when this at least 7,100-year plan is finished, or he will be burned up in a lake of fire. Because God wants perfection and beauty throughout the universe. He made the earth a beautiful place. We've done our best to pollute it and ruin it, and he says, woe to them that pollute the earth in the book of Revelation. So he is going to restore it. And he is not only that, he is going to take it many degrees in splendor and glory beyond what it was in the Garden of Eden. Read Revelation 20 through 21 and see that. So he is doing a great work, and this one is taking some time. Now, where I started by showing a work that he did that ended after seven days, I was introducing you to the idea that he does different works at different times. Now, his overall work in his plan is to create a family that he as the father and Christ as the brother will have, along with a wife for his son and many, many, many children. And we understand that plan through the holy days. And that is a work that he is doing. But now, within that vast overall work, he has done a lot of different works. Now, Psalm 64 addresses a time when all these evil people who have found fault with each other and fault with God are going to be shot at suddenly, and the ones that survive are going to stand back in awe and fear at Christ when he comes with his saints to take over and rule the earth after the honeymoon or the marriage and the honeymoon after this during the seven last plagues he's going to come back and take charge and rule with a rod of iron and we will rule with him a thousand years and then will all men fear and stand back Isaiah, I mean, Psalm 64 has not been fulfilled. It is yet ahead of us. 
because that is the time when he is going to be finishing up this work and have all men fear before him. Now, there's an awful lot that has to happen before that can be, because men do not fear God today. Even those of us who understand all this do not fear God to the level that we should. Wisdom begins with the fear of God. And we don't yet have enough wisdom, meaning we don't fear God enough. Nor do we fear the work that He is doing. But that's where He's headed. Let's go to 77 here, verse 12, just picking up a few. Here David is saying what his goal and purpose is. I will remember your works of the eternal, or remember the works of the eternal. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will meditate also of all your work and talk of your doings. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God that does wonders. You have declared your strength among the people. And then he talks about Jacob and Joseph and how the water saw him. The depths were troubled and the clouds poured out water. And thunder was in the heavens and the earth shook and so on. So David mused on the works of God. David was a man after God's own heart. So we could have tunnel vision and think primarily of what Herbert Armstrong did as the work and what some other people think that they are today doing as the work. But way back then, here was a man of God who mused on, thought on, the works of God. And he talks about the natural things that he was seeing on the earth, the thunder, the lightning, the troubled seas, the oceans, and what the weather can do there, and how dangerous they are, and how mighty are the wonders of God. Didn't Paul say the same thing? He says, you see God, and you come to know God through the creation that He has made. Romans 1, verse 20. So, we find David doing what Paul was admonishing us to do. We need to take time to muse on the works of God and understand how incredible and wonderful they are so that we then hold him in such high regard as David talks about here. So God has done a lot of works, not just the first seven days. He's done other works. We'll get to some of those. Let's go to chapter 90. <coughs> I'll pick it up in verse uh, 13. Return, O Eternal, how long? Now, Habakkuk asked that question, remember? How long, O Lord, do we have to wait? David asked the same question back here. <coughs> how long? And let it repent you concerning your servants. How long will this go on the way things are? David faced an awful lot of difficulties in his life. 
even his own family, trying to take his kingdom from him and kill him, and he had enemies Boku. How long? Oh, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. This is prophetic language. Make us glad according to the days wherein you have afflicted us, and the years wherein we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. So God is going to do a work at the end, after mankind has waited almost 6,000 years before he really sets his hand to do anything. He's letting this go on. And let the beauty of the eternal our God be upon us, and establish you the work of our hands upon us. Yes, the work of our hands establish you it. Now, there's an awful lot said in those five verses. How long will it be? When is God going to turn things around? When will His work influence us and bring glory to the children. And he says, the work of our hands will establish it. So here he's talking about not a work that he does all by himself, but something that obviously is in the future, because when David wrote this, it certainly hadn't happened. And if you look at history, it hasn't happened yet. So it's still ahead of us. And, from what he states, people will be involved in this work that turns it around. So that no longer will the sin and wretchedness and the things we see be here, even as they won't be there as they were in the days of David. It's going to get turned around. Now, he talks in another place about his strange and mysterious work. We'll get to that one. Might even get to it today. Uh, but let's continue on and pick up a little more here because we're, we're establishing a pattern of things that have to do with you and me, even though I'm not drawing it down to that yet, but I shall. Psalm 111, verse 1. Praise you the Eternal. I will praise the Eternal with my whole heart. Now, we find the prophets admonishing us to turn to God with our whole heart, particularly Jeremiah and others as well. In the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Now, that shows that we are to turn to God with our whole heart and that that is to be within the assembly of the upright and in the congregation. Now, you look around today, and you have difficulty seeing the assembly of the upright and the congregation, don't you? It's been estimated there are at least 400 different organizations or groups. And if you count individuals who are out on their own, it's a lot more than that. Now... Turning to him with our whole heart has to do with the assembly of the upright in the congregation. 
Now, Paul grasped that when he said, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, so much the more as you see the day draw near. So he's telling us that we are not to be a fellowship of one or three, but we are to find the congregation of God and assemble with them and don't forsake that. That's a command in Scripture that God backed up by placing it in His Word. Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, and especially as you see the day draw near. So that is being fulfilled before our very eyes. The day is drawing very near, is it not? And this is especially important right at the end when the day is drawing near. So if it meant something then, and it meant something in 1964, it means even more today, because the end is much nearer than it was in 1964. <coughs> you are kidding yourself if you think you can be an individual Christian. It is very, very important to be part of the body of Christ. If you're not attached to the body, you wither and die. Christ made that very clear, and so did Paul. He's the vine, we're the branches. Now, we all, often, and there are a lot, a lot of people today who were members, who say, well, I'm just attached to Christ. What are you, a vestigial organ? One of those so-called useless organs that's attached to Him all by yourself? You're not attached to anybody but Him? There are a lot of people who think they're that way. I'm not attached to anybody else because nobody else is as righteous as I am or understands as much as I do or is as whatever it is that goes through their mind that they are that makes them where they can be attached to Christ in and of themselves with no attachment to other people. And yet, Paul tells us, and Christ emphasizes, that you can't be an individual Christian. That you must find and turn to Him wholeheartedly within the assembly. Assembly implies more than one. has to be more than one to be an assembly. A conspiracy cannot be of one in that sense. People conspire together to do a certain thing. And we assemble together because Christ put us in the body where He wanted us. And if we separate ourselves from the body, we are no longer attached to the body. And Christ says we are His body. Now that's perplexing if you look at it that way. And if people heard this, it would be perplexing to him because they have set themselves aside because obviously there's no one that agrees with them. And if they don't agree with them, they can't be worth assembling with. Got it? It's self-righteousness. It isn't the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God 
allows for mercy, for forgiveness, for patience, for the fruit of the Spirit. But self-righteousness only allows for, I'm right because this is what I think, and if I think it, it must be right. And therefore, I am apart from and above anyone else. Therefore, they're not good enough for me to associate with. Now, is that the thinking of Christ? What does he say? He says, I call the weak and base. I sent my son to save the whole world because the whole world lies in sin and he is willing to forgive a sinner. Christ did not come to save the righteous in his own works. He came to save sinners. So within his work, within his church, within mankind as a whole on the earth, Christ is able to tolerate people who sin. He is able to accept them when they have been sinners, and, and if they begin to repent, He calls them into His congregation, into His body, and He gives them time to grow and to overcome their sins. He is loving and kind and patient and merciful, and He wants to forgive sin. He says He, it is His glory to cover sin. Now, we just read in Psalm 64 that the world's way is to uncover sin, to seek it, to find it, and to point it out to others. That is the way of the world, and it is the way of Satan. Satan looks for every sin he can find, especially in the body of Christ, and he immediately takes it to the Father's throne and lays it out before the Father and the Son of there's Daryl and there's John and there's Elizabeth, and this is what they're doing. He is the accuser of the brethren. And anyone who is an accuser of the brethren is doing the work of Satan, not the work of God. Can we ever, ever get that? Herbert Armstrong said over and over, I don't think half of you are getting it. And then he amended that. And he began to say, I don't think 10% of you are getting it. And then he was getting close to right. Because when it's all said and done, only 10% of the church is going to get it and come to do a work. When do we understand that finding sin and accusing anyone is the work of Satan? If you were a talebearer, you were a gossip, you were a finder of sin and a perpetrator of sin by repeating it to anyone else, you are a son of Satan. Bottom line, end of story. 
You are of your father, the devil. What Christ told the Pharisees. They thought they were righteous. They thought they were doing the work of God. Doing the work of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses. That's what they thought they were doing. They thought they were doing well. And Christ said, you're a bunch of snakes and unwashed sepulchers. You're not doing the work of God at all. You're doing your, the work of your father, the devil. All right, what was their attitude? He called himself righteous. If you don't exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, you're going to the lake of fire. Those are his works. What was their work? Their work was to point out how much they knew, how righteous they were, all the good deeds they did, and to point out the faults and sins and problems of others. What did they do to the woman taken in the act of sin? Accused, violated, misused, abused. What did Christ do? Forgive you. Go and sin no more. What a difference there. How about you and me? When we see, oh, that's sin. I saw sin. What do we do? Say, God, forgive them. They don't know what they do. Or if they do know what they do, they need to repent and leave it in His hands and not tell anyone else. Is that what we do? Do you find one place in the Bible where Christ went up to someone and looked at him and said, You're a sinner. Except the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews. It's not the way he operated. Your faith has made you whole. Your patience, your belief, is what's important. He didn't go around pointing out people's sins. Now, if anybody could, it would be him. Because he had not sinned one time on the face of the earth. And therefore, he was more righteous than anyone else. And he was in a perfect position to point out every sin of every person he encountered. But you don't find him doing that. The only ones that he pointed that out to were those who themselves were saying they were like God, but weren't. To the leaders. But he didn't go to the average person and point out their sins. And when someone else did, he defended them and told them, go and sin no more. He didn't tell them, you're going into the lake of fire. He didn't go whisper it to other people. He's not a gossip. That's Satan's job. It is the glory. You know what glory is? You ever see lightning? Have you ever seen the sun shining in its full glory and tried to look at it? Christ's face shines like the sun in its full glory. I saw the moon in its full glory last night as a full moon. 
means the feast is about a month away. But I could look at it, because that's as glorious as it gets. But I'm not going to go out there today and look at the sun with my naked eye, because my eye cannot stand that much glory. And Christ's face shines just like that sun. So when he says, it is the glory of God to cover sin, that means that his act of covering sin and his desire to will blot sin out like you looking at the sun and having your vision blotted out and go blind. Now, that's what God thinks of covering sin. It is His glory. If a woman have short hair, it is a shame to her. If a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her. No, it's not a glory on the same level of Christ, but it is a glory. And it's a shame to be the other way. Now, when it comes to sin, God says it's a shame to look for it. It's a shame to identify it and point it out to others. But it's a glory to cover it and forget it and move on. Do you realize what, how God looks at this? There are... About 7 billion sinners on the face of the earth today. And there may have been upwards of 60 billion, according to some estimates of sinners on the face of the earth, since Adam and Eve. That's a lot of sinners. And you and I have been among them, and you and I still sin. But fortunately, we have a Savior who forgives our sins. Now, he is our example, and he says we are to do as he does. We are to think as he thinks, and let the same mind be in you that is in Christ. And therefore, if he forgives sin and moves on, we're supposed to do the same thing, aren't we? That's his work. You know, when he is finished with his work, there will not be any sinners left. During the millennium, when the Father and the Son are ruling on the earth in the New Jerusalem, it says that there are still sinners around, but they will not be allowed in the city. But when His work is finished, there will be no sinners left. They will either have been changed into God and be as His image, which is His golden plan and purpose, and all Israel will be saved, so the vast majority will be before He's done. He's going to turn sinners into righteousness. And you know what else he says? He says, once we are changed, our sins will never be mentioned again to us. His glory will have wiped it all out. It will be gone. He even says, we will not even consider the things of the past. You know, I have thought... At times, wouldn't it be neat to go back and learn all this history about all the things that have gone on 
and discuss the past with your friends and your relatives and so on, if you see them in the kingdom of God? There's a questions I'd like to ask Abraham and David and Enoch and some of those people. You know what? If he says you won't even remember or care about the past, that human curiosity I might have today could very well completely disappear at the change because suddenly you're going to be looking absolutely forward to the wonderful events that are starting to transpire and will continue. When you're picked up off the face of this earth and taken in a moment in the twinkling of an eye to the throne of the very God of the universe and hear all the angels singing in unison and the 24 elders bowing before the throne of God and you're standing on the sea of glass having a ceremony to marry Emmanuel the King, you think you're going to be wondering around, wonderful Sarah's here and what she really did in 1933. I don't think so. You'll be in the moment and in the future. And none of this stuff that we get so excited about today and condemn each other for will be remembered nor cared about. And those who will not give it up and forget it and move forward will go into the lake of fire and be burned up and they won't paddle and gossip anymore either, will they? No, it'll all be done. Satan will be bound. He's the biggest gossip and accuser in the universe. And his mouth will be stopped. Now, you and I have a challenge today, and that is to help the work of God. What is the work of God? It's transcending you and me into His image not only physically, but spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and in every way. That's what He is doing. And He has called you and given you His Spirit so that it might help you make that change. That's what repentance, growing, and overcoming is all about. He says, if you will change and you will grow, Revelation 2 through 3, He will grant you to sit with Him in His throne and the many promises He makes in those two chapters. But if you do not get over your blindness and nakedness spiritually, you will go into the lake of fire and be burned up as an intransigent. That's someone who won't change. cannot change. He's given us a chance to change. Are we taking advantage of it? Are you helping with the work of God or are you hindering it by sticking to the way you are? We were told we were part of the work. We were told there was a work to do. Now, in the limited confines of that, we were to pray and pay and whatever to help with the work. But we have a much bigger work ahead of us. And Herbert Armstrong understood the greater work, and that was to make us part.
part of the family of God. He understood that bigger work. But let's look at it seriously here. That is a bigger work. It is a more important work than what Herbert Armstrong was doing it. What he was doing was a part of that. To call people out of this world and to begin to give them knowledge of God so that they could fear before God, learn His ways, and in their own selves be transformed, repent, be converted, grow, and be part of the kingdom of God forever. That was beyond pray and pay for a limited physical work. That was our job in the greater work. That has not changed. That physical work he was doing has stopped. It has died. It no longer exists. We have pieces and parts spewed all over the earth from it. It's done. It's finished. But the bigger work that we were part of is the one that he sticks our nose in, isn't it? Isn't he what it, that what he told us? You're blind and naked. You're unrighteous. Repent. Overcome. Grow. Get over being lukewarm. Be fervent in your prayers, in your overcoming, in your changing. Did he tell you to fix everybody else? Not once. He told you to fix you. That's all. Just you. Isn't that nice? You only have to worry about one. You. You don't have to worry about everybody else's righteousness. You don't have to worry about all their sins. You don't have to repeat them to each other. You don't have to imagine them and imagine evil about other people. You don't have to do that. In fact, you're told not to. That's even better, isn't it? Not only don't you have to do this, don't do it! And get yourself ready. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Not anybody else's, yours. Now, are we to assemble ourselves together and one part of the body help the other parts of the body? Yes. We are to meet together. We are to assemble. We are to congregate. We are to be a vital, live part of the body, not a dead toe, but a live part of the body to help the whole body operate properly, iron sharpen iron, and help each other grow, and be like Christ, mostly by our example. So what do we do? We tend to look around and find other people's problems, and in our own minds say, you're not like God. And we also compare ourselves among ourselves, which is not wise, and we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. I'm quoting scriptures here over and over. Not Daryl's idea. We tend to think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. 
And we tend to think of others as more lowly than we ought to think. And thereby we become self-righteous and picky and satanic in so doing. And God will not save the satanic. Backbiting is not something that will continue throughout the kingdom of God. Very rarely do we bite each other to the face. We usually bite each other in the back through others. So since God has made you responsible only for you, and you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, and He's told you not to try to work out anybody else's or condemn them, because He doesn't. You know what? I'll bet every one of you, and I do, go to God almost every day and ask Him for forgiveness of your sins. Don't you? If you don't, you're not much of a Christian. But you know you're a sinner. You know you have ungodly thoughts. You know you have ungodly actions. You know you have ungodly uh, temptations. Temptation itself is not a sin. It's giving in to it that is. Christ was tempted in all points like we are. He just never gave in. So temptation is not a sin. Satan tempts us, our human nature tempts us. God does not. So that's not a sin. But dwelling on it and doing it is. And he never did that. Now, he lived a perfect life so that every one of our sins might be forgiven. I know my sins more than I know yours. And every day, I think without fail or almost without fail, I ask God to forgive me of whatever sins I may have thought or done in that day. And he tells us in the book of Lamentation, he gives us a new day. Every day begins anew for us. Isn't that wonderful? I'll bet you know people that do not give you a new day every day. Know anybody like that? Pretty much everybody you know doesn't give you a new day every day. Let's turn back and read that right quick. Was it Lamentations about two? Somewhere right in there. It's it's a beautiful scripture because it's talking about the church and the description, the uh, destruction of the church today. Let's see. No, it's not two. It's a little far further down. I'll find it here. Yeah, it's chapter 3. Verse 20. My soul has them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. Now, he says in verse 18, let's go back up there. I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the eternal, remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. And I remember these things, and it humbles me that I'm not what I ought to be. Do we reflect 
from day to day on the things we are that we shouldn't ought to be and the things that we should be. So he says, This I recall to my mind, therefore have I hope. He has hope because he remembers his sin and it humbles him. And God does what? He exalts the humble. And he resists the proud. So we have hope if we're humbled by our own sins. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, because His compassions fail not. Do you know people whose compassions fail? Do you know people who will not forgive you? Do you know people that hold grudges against you a day long, a week long, a month long, 30 years long? Yeah, you do. His compassions fail not. They were new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The eternal is my portion, says my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. The eternal is good to them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the eternal. His faithfulness is so great that he doesn't consume us, but he gives us new compassion, new mercy, new love, new hope every morning. Now, that's the way he thinks. You and I should make it a goal to give every person that we know, every person on earth, mercy, compassion, forgiveness, a new hope every day. You know what? We all fall way, way, way short of that. We just do. Why does God say, pray for your enemies? Because we should. When did Job get blessed again? When he prayed for himself? Now you can go back. I think it's Job 42. It says God blessed him when he prayed for his friends. Not just for himself. Now, yes, we need to pray to God every day that our sins be forgiven. And He gives us a clean slate every morning. His mercy endures forever. It never wanes. It's there every day for you and me. Now, why don't we be humbled by our own lacks and faults and weaknesses and failings and then go to God and ask for forgiveness and accept His forgiveness and move forward through the new day knowing that we are forgiven and our sin from yesterday is no more. Now, if you go out that next day and do the same sin over, well, then it is there. And you have to ask for forgiveness again the next day. Now, he is anticipating and hoping that in giving you forgiveness every day so that you don't have to worry about yesterday, is that you will grow and overcome and quit repeating the sins of yesterday. That's his hope. Now, you need to do to yourself 
the same thing he does to you. Because if he forgives you and gives you a new day every day, then you're supposed to forgive yourself and give yourself a new hope every day. We don't wallow in the past. We do not worry about past sins. Because they're covered under the blood of Christ. And woe be to the man who digs in the blood of Christ to find other people's sins. Woe to that person. That is the most dastardly, satanic thing you can do, is dig through the blood of Christ to find sins of others that were forgiven that very morning. How ungodly can you get? The blood of Christ cleanses sin. The mind of Satan discovers sin and accuses of sin. A Christian accepts the blood of Christ for himself and others. and forgives theirs the same way he wants his forgiven. And I want mine forgiven every morning that I wake up and say, Father, help me do what I should do today and be what I should be today. I should be thinking the same thing of my friends and enemies. Oh, God, help them be better than they were yesterday and to grow and overcome and be in your kingdom. I know 90% of the people who were called into Worldwide Church of God at the end are going to go into the tribulation. They're going to suffer famine and pestilence and disease and the sword and captivity. Well, people, of, people who were called and have had or do have still the Spirit of God will likely not go into captivity, or very few of them. Because Satan knows them, and he will kill them. He says every one of the rebels here at the end time is going to go into the famine and sword and die man, woman, and child. None will make it through. None. Now, how should I feel toward people that I know that could be in that position? I should pray. Now, I can't change where they're going. I can't change that. But I can pray that they will repent, that they will be forgiven, and that they will be in the kingdom of God. Every last one of them. I hope Ananias and Sapphira will be in the kingdom of God. I hope Korah and Hitler will be in the kingdom of God. Now, their lives are done, so it won't do any good to pray that God will help them repent and overcome and grow. Because their, their deal is done here. They'll get their chance in the second resurrection. And most of them will be saved. All Israel will be saved. Korah was part of Israel. Hitler probably was too. I don't think the Germans are the Assyrians. I think they're Israelites, most of them. They'll have their chance. So I don't need to pray for them. That's taken care of. But for the living... 
we need to pray that all will repent. I don't want 10% of the people that were in the church of God to repent and come to God. I want 100% of them to repent and turn to God. Even though 90% of them will die physically, they can be saved spiritually and eternally if they repent. That's all that matters. If you find yourself in the tribulation, you better get on your knees in a hurry and repent that the soul might be saved, even though the body perish. <coughs> the work of God is a huge thing. Now, we examined a little bit, and I didn't get as far as I wanted to today. Uh, but he kind of turned into, will we submit to God's work in our lives? And will we submit to the work of God in the lives of our friends and our neighbors? Or will we point fingers and accuse and do the work of Satan? The work of God is that you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling and be part of the bride of Christ. The work of Satan is to accuse each other and put each other down and not forgive each other and give each other a new chance every day and let us languish and die in our sins. That's what Satan wants. And we accuse and discourage and frustrate one another with our half-truths, lies, evil imaginations, and even accusations of real sin. Because Christ doesn't forgive alleged sin. Did you know that? He doesn't forgive alleged sin. If it wasn't a sin, it doesn't have a death penalty. If it's a lie, it's not a sin. So when lies are told about you, and people say you sinned, maybe you didn't at all. God forgives real sin. Yours, mine, and theirs are the ones He forgives. And we need to give each other the honor and respect that Christ gives us, and that is forgive each other's sins daily and give each other new hope and a new start every day. You would love it if everyone would do that for you, wouldn't you? that they would pray that when so-and-so gets up this morning, God will have forgiven his sins and he'll have a wonderful day. You struggle with that one and so do I. And so does every Christian that walks the face of the earth and so does every human. Because we like to find fault and we like to see imperfection and we like to point it out and we like to feel good about ourselves and that is not wise. We're here to work out only our own salvation and inspire and encourage others to work theirs out by our example and occasionally by encouragement with our words. That's probably enough for today. You swallow that one and you'll be in the kingdom of God. You pay no attention to it and you're still headed for a lake of fire. It's salvation. Having the mind 
the love, the forgiveness, the patience, the mercy, the forgiveness of God is necessary for salvation because he will not have an unforgiving, impatient, unmerciful person in his kingdom. They will not be there. Satan won't, and neither will any other accusers. So, think that over.